Father, we thank you for the preparation that you've led Dad through over the last few weeks to prepare and share this word with us. We pray that our hearts would not be hardened like Pharaoh's, but we would be receptive to your word and to hearing your call in our life. Allow to stand what needs to stand and to fall away what needs to fall away. In the name of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Good morning. <clears throat> it's great to see all of you. Uh, as Andrew said, my name is Eric Bolger. I am an elder here at Harvest, and I also work at College of the Ozarks. I was thinking as I was sitting there, I have, people have been asking me how it's going at the college. Uh, we finished our third week of classes yesterday, and I keep telling people it's going smoothly, but I want to ask the students, is it going okay for you guys? Okay. Midterms haven't hit yet, so it's not bumpy yet. But so we're off to a good start, I think, but that's where uh, I uh, spend my time a lot is at the college, but I have the privilege of preaching today from Exodus chapter two, which is a very familiar passage. So it's the passage about Moses' birth and other things that happen related to that, I won't give it away. It is found on page 45 of your pew Bibles though, if you would like to look at it. I will not read directly from the text for the most part, but I will refer to verses. So page 45, Exodus chapter two, if you would like to join in. You can see by the title that I am going to talk about Moses and human identity. I would like to look at the third word there and say we're, we're talking about all humans, not just Christians here. So we will talk about what human identity is, how Moses can help us understand that better, what God intends for our, our identity, et cetera. At the end, we will talk more specifically about Christian identity, but the focus is really on human identity. So I wanna begin with some quotations from two very well-known Christians and then one lesser known one this is St. Augustine in his Confessions. This was written right at the, the time of the change from the fourth century to the fifth century AD. And he says, and if you've, if you've read his Confessions, they are directed to God. So you, Y-O-U, means God, okay? So he says to God, may I know you who know me. May I know as I also am known. And he noticed that second phrase that's in quotation marks is a quotation from 1 Corinthians 13. So Augustine is here quoting Paul, but I want you to see the, the interplay here between God who knows him and his desire to know God. So you have this very strong sense of verticality or vertical relationship in which Augustine wants to know God the same, same way God knows him. So the assumption is God knows him very deeply. God knows who he really is. And Augustine's desire is to know God in this same manner. John Calvin from his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, interestingly, if, if you know anything about Calvin, he was uh, very much a champion of God's sovereignty, of God's grace. Uh, but he begins his Institutes, which is a two volume opus of his, and he talks about self-knowledge which is, is a little surprising, but very significant. So he says, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. 
So Augustine said, God, you know me, may I know you as you know me. Calvin says, I have to know me before I can know God. And I have to know God before I can know me. So again, very vertical sort of understanding of self-knowledge, which is connected to our identity. Who are we? Because that's really the question that identity asks. And both of these authors who have pretty good credentials have stated clearly that we cannot have knowledge of self apart from relationship with and knowledge of God. Thirdly, David Benner from a book called The Gift of Being Yourself, so he's a more recent writer. He writes, our true self, the self we are becoming in God, is something we receive from God. Any other identity is of our own making and is an illusion. Knowing ourselves must therefore begin by knowing the self that is known by God. So let me just say a few things about this. Benner is saying, and I think scripture confirms that we have a true identity, a true self. The problem is we also create many false identities, illusions in part to fool others, in part to fool, <clears throat> excuse me, ourselves, and even ironically to fool God. But as Benner says, we cannot know ourselves until we know the true self, the self that God knows. Interesting uh, connection to this is God does not relate to the false parts of ourselves. He does not relate to the illusions that we create. Why? Because those aren't real. So God only relates to the true self, to the true identity, and as Benner says, this true identity is a gift from God. So again, you see the vertical relationship, our identity is rooted in God, and something in fact that we receive from God. Now I want to talk just briefly about the pervasive cultural uh, attitude or worldview in the West today, which is secularism, and about how it understands human identity. And I need to say that secularism is not just something over there that we disagree with. Secularism, according to Charles Taylor, is in the air we breathe. If we were fish, it's in the water we swim in. It is, uh, sadly, even within this sanctuary, secularism has pervaded culture. Now, we can still analyze it and identify it and see where our faith disagrees with it, but we have to realize this is not just something out there, it's in here. It's something that we live with every day and even our faith is impacted by secularism as we'll briefly describe. Before I do that though, I wanna show these four relationships that have been used by many Christians to describe the way God created us to relate. So we have a relationship from God and with God. And that's the vertical relationship we were talking about. We have a relationship with ourself, which interestingly is often neglected in terms of discipleship and discussions of what it means to follow Jesus. We have a relationship with other people and we have a relationship with the rest of creation, cats and dogs and horses and mountains and trees and lakes. So this is 
the theistic or biblical understanding of the relationships for which God created us. When we look at secularism, which again is in the air we breathe, the top of this chart is basically lopped off. And what secularism tells us, not, it doesn't say God doesn't exist, it just say it doesn't make very much sense that God exists, so let's act as if he doesn't. Let's not make decisions as if God existed because that takes too much faith and we can't prove it. So we will live as if there is no God and see how to make things work. What's interesting about this is what was seen by Augustine and Calvin and Benner as a God relationship gets eliminated and all the weight then falls on the self to determine identity. Benner called identity a gift from God. Secularism says, for all practical purposes, there is no God, therefore the self becomes the determiner of who we are. Now this has a lot of implications. We won't spend a lot of time on it today. But one thing that, that is true about identity today in a secular world, Taylor calls it a secular age, is as we've said, it's centered in the self and it is self-constructed. So in our culture in the West, identity is seen as something I determine for myself. I decide who I am. If I feel one way, then to be authentic to my identity, I should express that even if people don't like it or if they disagree with it, I ought to express what I feel so that I can self-construct my own identity and people are celebrated for doing this self-construction of identity. Interestingly too, Whereas before secularism, it was generally understood in Western culture that the goal of personhood was knowing God as Augustine and Calvin and Benner talk about. When God is removed, the goal becomes my happiness and your happiness. And so I can now justify and rationalize my search for identity as I am seeking what makes me happy. So if taking on one identity makes me happy, then you should not criticize me because the goal is to find personal happiness and I can find that by taking on a particular identity. I'm not gonna give a lot of examples. I think it's fairly obvious how this applies to our culture, but I will give a few. In addition to the things I mentioned about secular, secularism and identity, I wanna make three more points. Secularism tends to divide human identity. And I'll just give you one or two examples. There is a division today between people of color and white people. So if I am a person of color, in today's Western culture, at least in the United States, I am to be celebrated and lifted up simply because my skin is a darker color. If I am white, and especially if I'm male, then I am to be seen as of lesser value, even as uh, uh, unhealthy, as hurting things, as having been a hindrance to others in achieving 
their identity. So there's this division based on race, based on gender, based on age, based on wealth. So you have this division. There's these and those, and those are the only two categories that exist. Uh, this secularism also tends to reduce, if I used a fancy, fancier word here, it would be it's reductionistic. So it reduces identity to very concrete, actually not always concrete things, but to a few things. So again, my identity is my race. It's not anything more complex. My identity is my sexuality. And those things come to be, it's reductionistic in the sense that it says those are who you are. And there's not a recognition that there are many, many, many other things that make up a person's identity. Finally, secularism removes identity by taking, as we've already said, God out of the picture. So as Augustine and Calvin and Benner all said, identity is defined in relationship to the triune God but in secularism, that is eliminated as an option, as a reasonable option. And so it removes that possibility. All right, let's talk about Moses. This will be a little more familiar, maybe. Um, the story of Moses in chapter two of Exodus is uh, a familiar one. It's about his birth, about his being found by Pharaoh's daughter, etc. So I'm gonna walk through that. Again, page 45 in your pew Bibles. I've divided it into five sections, and I'll explain those briefly instead of reading through the text, and then there's one section at the end of the chapter. So the first section of the chapter is Moses' birth. He is born to Levite parents. So his father's a Levite, his mother's a Levite. As soon as he is born, his mother hides him because Pharaoh, as you'll recall from chapter one, has decreed that all male infants born to Hebrew women are to be killed. So Moses is hidden. Then he gets too big to be hidden, and so he needs to be delivered. And the deliverance is fun and familiar. So Moses' mother makes, and I'm gonna go ahead and jump to the next slide. She makes something called a tevat, which is an ark. And she puts Moses in the ark and she covers it with pitch and she puts him in the river. And he's not named yet. I use his Hebrew name here, Moshe. But Moshe means, and this comes from Pharaoh's daughter who names him later, means the one drawn out of the water or drawn out. I want you to notice in this picture the ark which we typically translate basket, but it's in Hebrew, ark, and I think that's important. King James gets it right here, by the way, so they do use the word ark. That little box at the bottom right of the picture doesn't look like a basket. Um, it's square or rectangular, and it looks the same way people would have thought of Moses, not Moses, Noah's ark, a rectangular box in which Noah and his family were saved from the flood. In this case, the author is making the point that Moshe, who has not yet been named, by, at least by his Egyptian mother, will be saved out of the waters of the river in a, an ark covered with pitch. 
In the same way in chapters 14 and 15, the Israelites will be saved out of the waters of the Red Sea as they cross. And so you have this picture that is being painted for us by the author, and sometimes, unfortunately, our English translations cover those up. Now, Pharaoh's daughter, as you know, comes down to bathe and finds this ark with a crying baby in it, and she wants to take the baby home. Moses' uh, sister just happens to be hanging out there. She offers to get someone to nurse the child from the Hebrew people. She goes and gets his mother, and then for some time, it doesn't say how long, Moses' mother gets to nurse her own son. Eventually, he ends up in Pharaoh's uh, palace uh, with Pharaoh's daughter and is named Moshe, or the one drawn out of the water. Then we have the incident of murder, so again, familiar. Moses seems, sees an Egyptian oppressing an Israelite or a Hebrew. By the way, Hebrew means one who crosses over the river, and that's what they're typically called here by the Egyptians. So a, he sees an Egyptian slave master oppressing a Hebrew man, and Moses looks around and decides the best solution is to murder the Egyptian, which he does, and then he buries him in the sand. Unfortunately, uh, the next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting and tries to intervene in their fight, and they know that he's the one who killed the Egyptian, and so then Moses must experience exile. He flees to the east. So he crosses the Sinai Peninsula. He goes to uh, western Saudi Arabia in a place called Midian, and he is now in exile as we have seen Abraham be in exile, Isaac be in exile, Jacob, etc., and all through the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we have this idea of exile. The fifth movement is that Moses meets the daughters of Ruel at a well, and he chases off the bad shepherds who are trying to keep them from getting water. He is brought back to the family and Ruel offers his daughter Zipporah to Moses as a wife. They conceive Gershom, or Gershom, and Moses names him saying, and his, the, the word ger, G-E-R, means sojourner. And so Moses says, this is his name because I have been a sojourner or exile in a foreign land. It's interesting that Moses was already in exile. He was in Egypt, right? And now he's in exile in Midian, but his life is exile. He never gets to the promised land. So Moses lives his entire life in exile. So what can we say about Moses and human identity? Moses has a lot of characteristics that we could say are his identity. For one, he's a Levite. That was very important in his culture. For a second, as we've said, he's a Hebrew. When he meets Ruel's daughters, they think he's an Egyptian, probably because of the way he was dressed, the way he talked, etc. He is a murderer, which we could say is his primary identity. He is also a sojourner or exile, which we could say is his primary identity. What I'd like to suggest is that for all humans, identity goes much deeper than these kinds of characteristics. And so I'm going to give you three things that were true of Moses, 
that are also true of us that are the foundation stones of our identity. So let's start with this one. Moses, and I know you all know this, but it bears repeating, was created in God's image. Moses, if he wrote the Torah, wrote Genesis 1, 26 and 27 about how God created humans, male and female, in his image. Now we can ask, what does it mean to be created in image? And we could spend the whole semester, I think in terms of college time, so we could spend the whole semester talking about what this means. But I do wanna point out uh, one or two things. One is that at the very least, the image is something that God wanted humans to become. So it has a dynamic aspect to it. God wants us and wanted Adam and Eve to grow up into something that represented him. And that's the second part of this to be created in God's image is to be like God. David Benner makes an interesting quote here. He says, the core of the lie Adam and Eve believed was that they could be like God without God. So Adam and Eve can only become like God because God made them like God and he can, they can only fulfill that process with God's help. Adam and Eve say, no, we can do it on our own. And so we know the rest of the story, right? And we're all part of the rest of the story. And we also think we can uh, know God, be like God with our own effort and with our own uh, strength, but that is not possible. So Mo Moses, like all humans, is created in God's image. Moses is also defined by God's promise. And this is where chapter two ends with some words about God's promise. So I wanna look at these in, with a little more care. So in verse 23, so if you're looking in your Bible, verse 23, this is how the chapter ends. During those many days, Moses has already left Egypt. He's married Zipporah, he's had Gershom. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Notice all the crying out and groaning and crying here. So there is a, a definite human response to the oppression. They are crying out to the right place. They're crying out to God. I also wanna point out that this word slavery is really important because it is the Hebrew word avad, A-V-A-D. And this is the word that is used in Genesis 2:15 for the task that God gave to Adam and Eve to do in the garden. We typically translate it work the garden or till the garden. It also in the Torah means worship or serve God. In fact, in the very next chapter, chapter three, verse 12, I think Andrew's doing that next week, right? God says, you will avod me on this mountain or the Israelites will avod me on this mountain. So avad can be worship, it can be work, it can be tilling soil, it, it can be toil, which it is in chapter three of Genesis, it can be slavery. So this is a word that the author of the Torah uses very strategically to show the trajectory of his promise. Verses 24 and 25, I've highlighted the four God verbs here. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. 
God saw the people of Israel and God knew. A couple things, uh, first of all, when it says God remembered, it doesn't mean he forgot. It just means that God re, uh, responded to their cry based on the promise he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Secondly, the la at the very end it says God knew. If you look at some translations, they try to say what God knew, so they add a direct object here, but there's no direct object in Hebrew. So if you look in the NIV, I think in the King James, the New Living, they will add something to the effect of God knew how bad it was for them, or God knew they needed help. But in Hebrew, and, and the uh, English Standard Version has done a great job here, all it says is God knew. And so they've left it as it was originally written. Finally, what this is all about is God's covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God is responding to Israel's cries, not randomly, or not simply because he feels mercy for them, but because he made a promise. He said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their descendants Israel, I will give you a land, I will multiply you, and I will bless you, including sending my presence with you. So this is part of Moses' identity, is that he, and in fact all people, are children or heirs of the promise. So it's not just Abraham's descendants who are heirs, but they are to bless all the nations as part of that promise. Thirdly, Moses' identity is formed by God's presence. Now again, next week, Andrew will talk about an encounter Moses has with a bush that is burning and not consumed. And that's the first encounter of Moses with God. And then throughout the rest of the Torah, and Moses dies at the end of the Torah, he will meet God again and again and again and experience God's presence. And he becomes an example of formation by God's presence. And what we mean by formation is to become fully the image of God that he was created to be. It's interesting, some of the things that are said about Moses in the Torah, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses was, and we, we don't think Moses wrote this for obvious reasons, but Moses was very meek more than all people who were on the face of the earth. It's funny, the rabbis said, Moses couldn't have said that, then he wouldn't be meek. So they, they supposed that somebody snuck in and wrote in these words about Moses in this way. So Moses was meek. It is interesting to think about Psalm 37, 1, but the meek shall inherit the what? The promised land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Finally, Moses is called the man of God, which is a pretty cool thing, men. Women, to be a woman of God is a great thing, but these things all come out of Moses being created in God's image, being shaped by God's promise and formed by God's presence as we read through the book. So here's Moses' identity. Our identity is the same. Our identity is rooted in these three, three things. We are created in God's image like Moses. We are defined by God's promise both fulfilled in Christ's first coming, but still to be fulfilled in his second coming, and we are formed by God's presence. What's really fun about this, I think, is that all of these things, uh, in all of these things, you can substitute Jesus Christ for what we just said. So in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is called the image of God. 
Colossians 1.15, 2 Corinthians 4.4, Jesus is called the image of God. So to be created in God's image is to be created to be like Jesus Christ, who is the image of God himself. Jesus Christ is also, as we said, the fullness of God's promise. All the gospel authors, Paul, John, James, etc., in the letters are all trying to show that Jesus fulfills what was promised in the Old Testament. That's the gospel, is that God has fulfilled his promise. And finally, Jesus Christ is, as we know, God with us. He is the very presence of God, Emmanuel. In closing, I just want to quote two verses. First Peter 2 uh, is interesting because this is a place, and there's many in the New Testament, where a New Testament author refers to believers in Jesus as sojourners and exiles. And like I said, Moses was a sojourner his whole life. You and I, unless Jesus returns, are going to be sojourners and exiles our whole life. And a reason for that is, is we are rejecting the secular narrative, the secular story, which removes God from our identity. Another verse that, that I uh, wondered whether I should include or not, but I'm going to, and I just pray the Lord uses it, but it's Galatians 2.20. So in terms of Paul's identity, he's all the things we've said, he's created in God's image, he is uh, defined by the promise of God, he experiences God's presence, but he lives by the faith of the Son of God. Now, many of us have memorized this to, to say, I live by faith in the Son of God, i.e., my faith is how I live. But notice how King James translates it here, which is, I think, more accurate, that it's not my faith, but Jesus' faith that matters. I live by Jesus' faith, who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is how we are defined. This is our identity. N.T. Wright, in his Galatians commentary, translates it this way, I live within the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To put it bluntly, our identity is in Jesus Christ. That is where we find who we are, who we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to be, and all of us are unique. We all have a unique uh, identity but our identities are all rooted in the same theological truths. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for your word in Exodus 2. Thank you for Moses and the way you have used him for us as an example. And I thank you for the richness of your word, and I pray that all of us might come to a deeper understanding of the identity to which you have called us, understanding our creation in your image, understanding that we are set apart as those recipients of your promises, and finally experiencing your presence informed by that presence. We do pray that you would bless the rest of our worship as we sing and celebrate the table today in Jesus' name. Amen.